This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Though we effectively parted ways about a decade ago, because as he said of Brown, and what will undoubtedly be left unsaid in all the, un, the, all the ultimately insufficient tributes to this great man, is that Glenn was also an asshole of the highest order. Glenn wasn't self-important, like he said of Brown. It wasn't himself he held in high regard beyond all else. No. That lofty space was saved strictly for black radical analysis. His almost singular focus on that made him hold in low or with no regard damn near everybody and everything else. If you weren't helping him evolve or disseminate black radicalism, you better at least be bringing him a cigarette or a drink or be careful. Now, beyond that, it must be said clearly that this parallel I'm attempting is unfair for at least two reasons. First would have to be that I am saying this far sooner than Glenn Glenn did regarding Brown, though Hollywood will never. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Though we effectively parted ways about a decade ago, because as he said of Brown, and what will undoubtedly be left unsaid in all the, un- the, all the ultimately insufficient tributes to this great man, is that Glenn was also an asshole of the highest order. Glenn wasn't self-important, like he said of Brown. It wasn't himself he held in high regard beyond all else. No. That lofty space was saved strictly for black radical analysis. His almost singular focus on that made him hold in low or with no regard damn near everybody and everything else. If you weren't helping him evolve or disseminate black radicalism, you better at least be bringing him a cigarette or a drink or be careful. Now, beyond that, it must be said clearly that this parallel I'm attempting is unfair for at least two reasons. First would have to be that I am saying this far sooner than Glenn Glenn did regarding Brown, though Hollywood will never make an even half-hearted attempt at a film about Glenn Ford, thereby providing some mass invitation to reflect on him or his work. To my point, Glenn was far too radical and correct to have his brilliance elevated to the level of commercial propagation. The second reason, though, is far more important. I will never be to Glenn what he was to James Brown. This isn't a comparison of proximity. It's one of importance or a comparison of their seminal relationship to their crafts. That is, Glenn Ford was to black radical journalism, commentary, radio, and analysis to black radical media, what Brown was to music, and would only be due to his banishment from any form of capitalist enterprise or the absence of the kinds of support offered James Brown by the most reactionary of cultural industries or politics, that there will be many who don't properly appreciate the accuracy of my claim. Imagine Glenn being invited to even Obama's White House, as Brown was to Nixon's. Glenn Ford should be as popular and beloved among any consumer of news as James Brown is to consumers of music. He was even to black commentary what Rakim is to rap. 
Glenn could easily take seven commentators and put them in a line, add seven more commentators who think they can rhyme. Well, it takes seven more before I go for mine. Now that's 21 commentators ate up at the same time. Glenn invented a new lane of expression, revolutionized black public popular discourse, and has provided more samples to new generations of often less capable writers, myself included, than any single journalist of the last two decades. So when anyone bristles at my describing him as I did Brown, I expect and understand any visceral reaction. All would be understandable if not justified. But for a time, I think I knew Glenn as well as anyone could. I wanted to be able to think like him, write like him, bring the funk and soul to news analysis like him, and only I cared slightly more than he did about all the feelings he hurt along the way, never worried about how his analysis hit as long as it hit hard, and it always did. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Prior to the civil rights and equal accommodations laws of the government in this country, there was back segregation by the country, legal discrimination by the government, prohibited blacks from voting by the government, you had to eat in separate places by the government, you had to sit in different places from white folks because the government said so, and you had to be buried in a separate cemetery. It was apartheid American style from the cradle to the grave, all because the government backed it up, but guess what? This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. You're going to sing the swim, you're going to learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're going to learn the truth. Alternative activist empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that talk, matters. matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. And now, Janice Graham. Then good evening. I am here. Right on this microphone. Thank you so very much for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. As uh, we either end the week or begin the week, I don't know how you set your calendar, but I begin my week at Our Common Ground. 
and we thank you for being with us. If you would like to join us in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. It's a OCG night at our common ground. <laughs> it's like people ask me all the time, why is your opening so long? Because I know my people. Uh, and uh, people are trying to get settled uh, on another um, Saturday night in America. I hope you are well. I hope you are safe. And I want to highlight before we get into our program tonight that the COVID-19 Delta variant is out taking names and kicking asses. And you should mask up. You should mask up for my grandchildren and the people that I love. You should mask up to protect yourself. We in this country have got to figure out a way, and it's not going to be a Joe Biden speech every afternoon. It's got to be we have decided that people who don't have our public health interests in mind are enemies. That's how I put it. If you don't vaccinate yourself, if you refuse to wear a mask, you should be isolated from the rest of us. And I'm going on record. I think employers ought to mandate a vaccination. If you don't want to have the vaccination, shit, you don't want the job. Um, I mean, there are employers already who require a health examination. You go to the doctor, you get a thing, and it's your immunization record. But you got problems, you're eating a hundred Big Macs a month and going to the, I ain't picking up on nobody, but going to the Domino's and the wherever's at the food truck and you have no idea what goes on behind the curtain. But you got an argument with the medical people and the scientists you got a meta, you got all kinds of explanations about what you don't want to put in your body. Okay, but I am just telling you, I think schools should require masking of both school personnel, teachers, and students. As a matter of fact, because we can't protect our children. I'm 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 really thinking and I don't know how you feel about it but I'm really thinking that maybe the little ones who are not protected by vaccination maybe uh ought to there ought to be a special plan. I'm advocating a special plan for those people because many especially in our community many children live with elders live with people who are high risk in the medical categories, are medically high risk, and um, 
children and others on the outside are carriers, transmitters, and this Delta variant has a high level of transmission even if you have been vaccinated. Um, you can transmit. I'm just passing on information. And, and you know, I'm just saying uh, here in the state of Florida we have had the highest daily rate of in infected persons who have been tested or hospitalized since the pandemic started nearly two years ago. And we have a governor who has got to go. I mean, this guy, um, I'm talking about Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, who is now threatening school districts that are defying his executive order about requiring masks in schools. What is that all about? This is all about political games being played so that you can have more deaths under the banner of the Joe Biden administration. That's the bottom line. Hundreds of thousands of people will be evicted, be eligible to be evicted from their homes come midnight as this show shuts down tonight because you have Republican governors and Republican mayors and Republican state legislatures and Republican county officials who have not distributed the monies to the people who needed to avoid eviction. In this, uh, I'm going to try to take some time in the second hour to talk about all of this, and I hope you will join us at uh, 347-838-9852. A death, a, a death cult wave is running through America. We have my beloved sister, Ayanna Presley and Cori Bush, congresswomen, sleeping on the steps of the Capitol building last night and tonight. We got a problem in America, and these people do not care. They do not care. But I know you are joining us tonight as we remember Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford was the co-founder, along with our friend, our now beloved ancestor, Bruce Dixon, a Black Agenda Report, one of the most essential, <coughs> excuse me, publications in America that has both a blog and a radio station. Um, and I think that the work of Glenn Ford over many years, I have known Glenn Ford, Ford, Ford for nearly 50 years. Most of my work with him had to do with the Peace and Freedom Party. 
but he is a what I have been calling a pioneering black true warrior in the modern ages. He founded Black Agenda Report after co-founding blackcommentator.com in 2002. It was a weekly, both of them a weekly journal, quickly became the most influential black political site on the Internet. In October 2006, Ford and the entire writing team of Black Commentator uh, launched Black Agenda Report. But let me tell you a a little. I I, I think uh, most of you know Black Agenda Report, but most of you don't know the sacrifices and the import of when Glenn Ford did achieved in his life what he achieved. He created his first radio syndication, which was a half-hour weekly news magazine called Black World Report in Washington, D.C. In 1974, he joined the Mutual Black Network, which was 88 stations, where he served as the Capitol Hill State Department and White House correspondent and Washington bureau chief, while also producing a daily radio commentary. In 1977, Ford co-launched, produced, and hosted Black America's Black Forum, ABF, the first nationally syndicated black news interview program on commercial television. In addition to his broadcast and Internet experience, Ford was national political columnist for Encore American and Worldwide News Magazine. Uh, He founded uh, Black Commentator, but he also founded Africana Policies Magazine. He authored the Black the Big Lie, an analysis of U.S. media coverage of the Grenada invasion, which was another intersection in our lives for him. He voiced over 1,000 radio commercials, half of which he also produced in scores of television commercials and served as a reporter and editor for three newspapers, two dailies and one weekly. His work in television, in my opinion, was the reason why his leadership has been so successful at the Black Commentator and the Black Agenda Report. We have lost a brilliant, insightful, strong voice. His persistence, his sacrifice, his passion, and his spirit for insisting on an informed, liberated, and free black people. His service and work will resonate for many generations and years to come. And I am personally saddened by his passing. His leadership in black truth-telling, journalism, and in the media has earned all of our ultimate respect. 
Glenn Ford is now a beloved ancestor. And I am sure that many of you who knew him, who understood the importance of the work that he was doing, will share that belief with me. Um, I do want to um, say to the staff and contributors and writers of Black Agenda Report that uh, here at Our Common Ground, with our many, many years of association with the publications, with the uh, with Glenn, that we send you our greatest and deepest condolences for your loss. And what I want to do tonight is share with you Glenn in his own words. Well, the crisis stems from uh, the contradictions between the two main currents in, in, in black politics. Uh, one sometimes is called the assimilationist Current, uh, and that is that the struggle uh, is is about uh, equality uh, and nothing else, uh, citizenship rights and nothing else. Uh, to become uh, Americans, uh, and that's it. And once we have achieved this Americanness, uh, then the the movement is over. Uh, the other current is I call the self-determinationist current, which recognizes uh, African Americans as a distinct people, having become a distinct people here in this country, uh, who have the right uh, to uh, choose their, their own political uh, path, uh, to express, uh, uh, to try to build a world as they see it, based upon a world view that they are entitled to <laughs> because of their peoplehood, which they achieved in this country. And, and often, uh, oh, in fact, uh, certainly all, all the way through uh, the 60s, uh, these two currents uh, ran uh, parallel to each other in, in the same direction. Uh, however, once we achieved uh, uh, le legal status as full Americans, the contradictions uh, between the two, class, the two currents, uh, the one that would just like to assimilate and, and uh, measured its progress by how, how American-like we were, <laughs> and the other, uh, which wanted to express uh, our view of the world uh, to shape the world as as we thought it should be shaped. That's, uh, that, that of course is done politically. Uh, there there was a divergence there. Uh, this these these contradictions have come to the inevitable head with the election of Barack Obama. It certainly is a a profound change in terms of that current. Uh, that seeks to be uh, totally integrated into this American uh, project. It's, uh, it does not uh, challenge that American project, a project that began uh, with, with genocide and enslavement and continues uh, as, as imperialism. Uh, uh, so, so for those uh, who sim simply wanted to uh, integrate into this, into this American uh, project, uh, to, as Martin Luther King uh, once said to Harry, Harry Belafonte, uh, run into a burning house, uh, this is the epiphany. 
this is the end of things. Uh, this is the, uh, the reason uh, to call a halt to the movement. Uh, but for those of us uh, whose project is, is not one, uh, uh, is not a continuation of, of, of this American project from genocide and slavery and now to imperialism, uh, well, well uh, it, it, certainly that was no signal for us to uh, end our struggle. Obama is a corporate Democrat. He's a corporatist. Uh, he's exactly uh, what, what he seems to be. Uh, within the black community, uh, there is this uh, notion, uh, uh, almost generally uh, shared, that Obama is winking, winking at us, that he's uh, playing a game until he secures uh, his, his position of authority uh, uh, to the extent that he can become his own man. Uh, this is when the brother Obama uh, will emerge, uh, uh, and uh, we should just wait and, and, and be supportive of him, uh, not do anything that might uh, weaken him. Uh, and and, and uh, at, at some point, uh, this, this uh, blacker Obama, this more progressive Obama, this independent Obama, this anti-corporate Obama, uh, 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 will make himself known. Uh, we at Black Agenda Report have no such illusions. Uh, he, he is a, a corporate Democrat uh, who ideologically and practically uh, is, is no different uh, than Bill Clinton or his wife. I think, in fact, that Obama is pretty much the perfect corporate guy. Uh, I could see him in a very large uh, multinational corporation with, with uh, 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 with 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 uh, big holdings in the United States, uh, something like a a Ford or a General Motors or the old Ford and the old General Motors, and Obama would be the kind of executive uh, who would try to reconcile uh, the various profit centers uh, within uh, Ford, let's say, uh, and and more importantly reconcile the different imperatives in that corporation. There'd be uh, some parts of the corporation uh, whose, whose job it is uh, uh, to cut throats, uh, to kill the competition, uh, to trim uh, uh, workers' uh, uh, remuneration uh, at, at every uh, point of production. Uh, these are the mean guys. And then there are other parts of the corporation uh, whose job it is uh, to present uh, that the, the, the whole institution uh, as benign. Uh, this, is, this is the part that says Ford is good for Michigan. Ford, Ford is, a, is a native son. Uh, Ford cares about you. Ford contributes to your charities, you see. And that's the benign section of the corporation. And all of them have a job to do, and sometimes uh, they're antithetical, but they're all necessary for the machine to run. Barack Obama would be great at that. Uh, so if we're talking about the United States as a, corp as a corporation, uh, he uh, does that perfectly. Uh, he tries or attempts to do it. Uh, he tries to reconcile the irreconcilable. He's going to reconcile labor and management. He's going to reconcile uh, 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 blacks and whites and, and, and browns uh, by, uh, by uh, inviting uh, representatives of each to have a beer on the White House lawn. Uh, this is what a corporate guy would do. Uh, he, he, seems to, uh, he seems to come from, from that mold. Barack Obama is, is speaking from basically the same position uh, as Bill Cosby. Uh, it is also a position that is quite fine, uh, jibes 
very well uh, with what corporate uh, power, uh, the way corporate power would like you to think. Let's go back again, however, uh, to to uh, to black politics, and I mean that in a broad in a broad sense. Uh, usually, the conversation uh, uh, revolves around uh, uh, questions of of self-help. Uh, people like uh, Cosby and and uh, the words that uh, Barack Obama is mouthing uh, will always go back to self-help. We need to help ourselves. Uh, this this line of argument uh, basically rules out political organization of the people, putting masses of people in motion as as a kind of self-help. When in fact it is the most important self-help that we can possibly engage in. We, we did put ourselves in motion in the late 50s and the 60s and into the uh, early 70s. And during that very brief period of time, uh, we made greater strides uh, than we had ever uh, uh, made in the United States of America. And it wasn't because we pooled our money and formed black businesses and bought shares in, in a black star line. It was because we organized at every level that we were represented and demanded change. That is self-help. So when we hear these pull yourself up by your bootstrap uh, cliches, what we're hearing is folks saying, uh, you don't need to be organizing and making all that noise. You see, just clean yourself up and put on a tie and, and apply for a job. And, and if you don't get it, come back again and try to get yourself some education. But don't you dare, don't you dare organize against the powers that be when, in fact, that is the ultimate self-help. And you're helping everybody else as well. Probably not. This is still a, a uh, thoroughly racist uh, country. If the goal is to elect a black president and declare the struggle over, uh, I, I suppose uh, uh, then, then you would say that, that, that Barack Obama is fighting the black fight. You see, there are two currents. That's what I began talking about. Uh, if, if you simply uh, want to reconcile the black presence uh, in America, with the, uh, the, the larger society, that is, with, with white rule, and I mean rule not from the White House, but rule in all the important uh, power centers of the country, uh, then, then, then we have achieved our victory. Uh, if, if that is not what your goal is, if your goal is, is to reshape the world we live in, uh, then Obama uh, is now in the opposition. There is a role, there, there, a place uh, for electoral politics. There's especially a place in electoral politics for black people who have not uh, uh, fulfilled uh, all of the possibilities of, of electoral politics. Uh, uh, there's a lot more work to be done, uh, and, and gaining the White House is really not, not part of it. Uh, uh, so I'm not here uh, speaking about the futility of, of electoral politics. When you have uh, uh, an un, unfinished business, uh, that is, black folks still not having uh, achieved everything that could be achieved within the context of what we used to call, or we should call, bourgeois democracy uh, in, in the years since, uh, since the passage of, of all those uh, civil rights acts, uh, then certainly it is legitimate 
and 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 a good thing to do uh, to to pursue every electoral uh, arena. But to believe that that is the only way you change society is absolutely foolish, because that menu is has been prepared by someone else. Certainly, when we're talking about the state and and national level. So to answer your question, I wasn't avoiding it. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter whether uh, Barack Obama was the best uh, choice on the menu that was put in front of us. Uh, we, we, if we are to accept any of those choices uh, as, as being enough, uh, then we, we are nothing but consumers of their crap. Uh, we might as well just, uh, you know, we, and we, we shouldn't even be talking about going to another restaurant. Uh, we should be re-examining the whole system of delivery of, of, of the meal. The thing that is most important to know uh, for people who, who uh, want to engage in, in struggle on behalf of their fellow human beings is that, objectively speaking, uh, this system is on its last legs, uh, that we are actually, well, I think, privileged uh, to, be, to be looking, to be able to witness the demise of, of a system that has destroyed so many millions of people. Uh, we are watching it uh, self-destruct because it always had within it the seeds of its own destruction. We're watching it self-destruct right in front of our eyes. And, and though uh, struggle is always painful, uh, and you haven't, you've never won until you actually have won. And it is possible to become demoralized at every juncture. And it's, it looks like the man is still as much in, it appears as if the man is still as much in control as he was yesterday. Objectively, uh, he's not. And, and, and once, once you understand that, and it's easily understandable if you, if you study what is actually happening with the world economy and the relationship of forces. Once you understand that you're on the winning side, well, hey, uh, that's, that's some hell of a, an, an adrenaline, uh, and you can make it through to the next stage. Well, life is large, and there, there are, uh, there's almost an infinite number of doorways uh, to helping other people. That's what struggle is all about, uh, and helping yourself. Uh, that one could enter. Uh, I, I was fascinated by uh, uh, by the, uh, the story of a group in uh, in, in Baltimore, a group of young people. Uh, uh, they they banded together uh, to create uh, tutoring classes. Uh, these were all uh, high school graduates going to college, but they decided that that they could best help their community uh, by tutoring uh, high schoolers. Uh, who were in danger of, of, of dropping out. Uh, and so that's some good bootstrap, you know, help the community, self-help uh, kind of stuff. Uh, but they uh, demanded uh, that the city and county and state fund and expand their efforts. Uh, and when there was no positive response, they launched direct action, uh, that is, demonstrations and, and all kinds of direct actions uh, to demand state function, uh, state uh, financing for the vital work that they were doing. So they combined that kind of bootstrap, help your own community, uh, cast down your bucket uh, approach with direct action. Now, give us our money, because <laughs> it's all our money, 
so that we can uh, efficiently help our own people. I thought that was just a, a fantastic approach for, for people who are 19, 20, 20 years old uh, to take. Uh, but uh, with, with a, just a little imagination, uh, there, are, there are other uh, promising doors that, that people can, can walk through. That's just one. I, I, I thought it was very interesting. I came into uh, black radio. Uh, actually, my father was a was a big disc jockey, so he uh, uh, he coerced me into reading the news uh, on the air during his uh, during his radio shifts uh, before my voice even changed. Uh, when I got out of the military in 1970, uh, I actually uh, uh, had no in experience in doing anything worthwhile or uh, that could get one paid except uh, jumping out of airplanes uh, and talking on the radio. So, so that's when I entered radio in 1970. It was a, a wonderful uh, uh, period. Uh, the, the, black, the black radio format had exploded all, over, all across the country. Uh, by that time, there were now hundreds of black radio stations. But because we had just experienced the 60s, uh, and, and that wonderful period of, of people in motion, uh, those radio stations, uh, people demanded of those radio stations uh, that they be accountable uh, to that newly awakened community. And so every radio station, uh, virtually every black-oriented radio station in the country was compelled to hire full-time at least one newscaster. This was a whole new core uh, of news people uh, that didn't even exist uh, five years before. All of a sudden, there are hundreds of, of radio news people at stations that didn't even exist five years uh, before who are trying to figure out how do we serve the community. Uh, and and what, what occurred uh, was a, a beautiful uh, synergy between uh, a movement which still was vital and energetic, uh, and a bunch of young broadcasters whose job, uh, whose self-assigned job was to report on the movement. In that process, new leadership, uh, which comes up all the time in the community, uh, found, found themselves uh, with, with a voice on the air through a medium that was speaking directly to their people, not a general format medium uh, that's speaking to everybody, but black radio that was speaking to your community. And that became a megaphone for our black conversation uh, that, that had never uh, existed before. Uh, it, it unleashed uh, or empowered uh, a, a whole new uh, layer uh, uh, generation uh, of of leadership uh, to to take on projects that they might have not taken on before uh, without the the uh, the presence of of newscasters on the medium that their friends and family and neighbors were listening to paying attention to them and treating them as black leaders. Black radio then became an incubator for emerging black leadership, and it was a, a wonderful and very bright, uh, vibrant time. But as radio uh, consolidated, uh, 
uh, as things always do under capitalism, uh, black radio also consolidated and began uh, shedding its newsrooms. Uh, in 1973 in Washington, D.C., three black-oriented radio stations fielded 21 reporters. That's a black radio press corps of its own in that city. And, and uh, much the same was happening in big and small cities all across the country. In Washington, D.C. today, uh, there are six black-oriented radio stations. Together, they field only four reporters. The black radio is no longer an incubator for black leadership. Uh, and I believe uh, that these decades of, uh, near, of deterioration and now near extinction of black radio news uh, has contributed uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the leadership crisis that we have in black America. Who is the leader? Who's choosing the leaders? Uh, you see what I'm saying? The incubator is gone, uh, and now the discourse is entirely in the hands of a corporate media, which is also white. Even if it employs other black folks, it's still a white corporate medium. My take on this is also rather different uh, than my colleagues. I don't see this uh, new media uh, as uh, being in, in any way uh, a, a real counterbalance uh, to the, the hegemony uh, of, of the corporate media. Uh, Black, Black Agenda Report, for example, reaches uh, 25,000 uh, uh, readers uh, uh, per, week, per issue. Uh, they are very smart people. Uh, we chose them and they chose us, uh, and they are movers and shakers, and, and we think we, we do uh, as good a job as we can of influencing their thought processes. Uh, however, uh, there's no way uh, that that, that uh, can in any way uh, compete uh, with the major broadcasters who also, who also control most of what we call new media. You see, uh, so the decline of broadcast television does not mean that the corporate voice is in decline. It means the corporate voice uh, is more uh, is is uh, has infiltrated uh, many other uh, areas of of media, uh, establishing its uh, homogenizing standards, including new media. If I could. If I could use an example, which I think is a telling one, it certainly uh, opened my eyes uh, from, from hip-hop. Uh, in 1987, uh, I co-founded the first rap music uh, syndication on commercial radio called uh, Rap It Up. Eventually, we had uh, 66 uh, stations. Uh, this was a, 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 another wonderful period in, in black culture. Uh, all of these uh, young people, uh, who had found a vehicle for their own uh, cultural and political uh, expression, uh, doing their own thing uh, through, uh, oh, about five or six independent labels, almost all of them uh, in New York. Uh, and it took off like, like wildfire. Uh, the, the, the big labels uh, looked at it, as corporations do, to see uh, how they could get in. It took them a couple of years, uh, but by about... 1990, uh, they began uh, buying up uh, the the uh, the original uh, independent uh, hip hop uh, labels and preparing to make their big move. They were going to uh, 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 
to own uh, hip-hop. Uh, but they were rather confused, as corporate types are, with new phenomenon. They, they, they were, these were new numbers, and they didn't understand them. Then in 1991, uh, one of the, one of the uh, big labels uh, did a study, and what they found was something kind of amazing. They found that the most active consumers of hip-hop were 11- and 12-year-olds. That's called tweens uh, in the business. Uh, these, these, are, these are not yet even teenagers. Uh, they saw that, that that was a fantastic figure. Uh, no, no other genre uh, of music uh, had, had uh, uh, garnered uh, uh, a, a, a core listenership that was that young. Even R&B was 15, 16, 17 years old. But here they had 12 and 13-year-olds. Uh, it was it was this, as if they were struck by lightning. They said, "We will take over this medium uh, and and uh, tailor the product for what we now know, because of our study, is the most active consuming group." And from that moment on, they made rap product pre-juvenile. Now, what do juveniles like? What do 12 and 13 year olds like? Uh, boys as well as girls. They like to curse. Remember when you were that age. There's those, those curse words rolling off your tongue, uh, it's almost, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a very sensual feeling. Uh, and so, and so uh, the, their product uh, was peppered uh, with gratuitous uh, profanity. Uh, in fact, they, they, they began bringing in very young groups uh, that were foul of mouth because that's what the study told them uh, these 12- and 13-year-olds would like. There's another characteristic of the 12- and 13-year-olds, especially the boys, but also the girls, especially the boys, however, and that's misogyny. Uh, 11, 12-year-old boys don't know how to deal with girls, and so they act like they hate them. So there's a kind of, <laughs> of juvenile uh, misogyny that is uh, part of that period of human development. Uh, the corporations understood that, too, uh, and so they uh, saturated their product uh, with, uh, with misogynist uh, lyrics. So here we have profanity and misogyny uh, that is uh, uh, industrially uh, fed into the music. I can't tell you how many times uh, these young people uh, would be sitting at my kitchen table after interviews that we would do with them, almost in tears uh, because the, uh, the labels that they were working with uh, uh, were pressuring them uh, to get street. Uh, one, one young female artist, she was about 16 years old, actually broke down in tears and said, they're trying to make me into a whore. They're trying to make me into a whore. And they were. Well, we have to break the back of corporate power. That's the project uh, for all of, of humanity. We can't solve any of the world's problems uh, uh, except through uh, human uh, collaboration. And the, the, the big obstacle uh, in our way uh, is corporate power. Corporate power, of course, runs the United States. Corporate power and imperial power are the same thing here. Uh, uh, so in that kind of light, then uh, the, uh, <laughs> the difficulties posed to, to our culture by profane and misogynist rap uh, lyrics kind of pales in comparison, doesn't it? Uh, but it's all about breaking corporate power. The Gates affair is probably as innocuous <laughs> uh, an example of racial profiling uh, 
as it really exists in this country, uh, as one could find. Uh, now, there are those who say that we should be grateful to Barack Obama uh, for at least uh, calling attention uh, to racial profiling in any form uh, that he has given us this teachable moment. And, you know, we could still be having that discussion except for the actual place that that teachable moment uh, went, uh, that within days the teachable moment uh, uh, was playing itself out on the White House lawn with a couple of guys drinking a beer and uh, resolving uh, what was finally depicted as a misunderstanding uh, among people. Well, racial profiling in the United States is not about uh, uh, under, misunderstandings among individuals. Racial pro profiling is public policy in the United States. Uh, racial, policy, racial profiling in, in, in New York City uh, sees half a million uh, individuals stopped and frisked every year on the streets of New York. 90% uh, of them are black and Latino. Now, we know this because the ACLU sued the city of New York and forced them to come up with the figures uh, broken down not just by incident but by race. And that's the only reason we can, uh, can quantify what all black folks knew was happening. Many of us, of course, were astounded that, that, that it was at that kind of scale. Uh, half a million, more than half a million last year, if the uh, stops and frisks continue apace, this year they will exceed 600,000. That's 600,000 people uh, finding themselves in the jaws of the law, 10,000 a week because of, of public policy. That has nothing to do uh, with misunderstandings among individuals. Uh, if we took the Obama model, I suppose the city of New York would have to uh, invite several hundred thousand black and Latino men uh, to Central Park to have a beer with 35,000 cops. The problem is that the next year, the process would start all over again. So, so the net result of the Gates affair uh, was to trivialize uh, racial pro profiling as it actually uh, exists. It's not a question of can't we all get along in the famous words of Oh, you remember those famous words. Uh, it's, it's, about, uh, it's about confronting a state policy uh, that, that puts uh, black and Latino men uh, at risk of arbitrary, uh, arbitrary action by, by the criminal justice system. A meaningful approach would be to stop being an imperialist power which tries to subject every other uh, nation to your, to your will. Uh, that's what imperialism is about. Uh, within that context, uh, humanitarian military intervention is just another excuse for military uh, in intervention. Now, now I, I certainly wouldn't want to be put on, uh, on the other side of the line from being a humanitarian, uh, but certainly the United States uh, is not is not the power that uh, that decides uh, what regime is humane and what is not. 
what is good government and what is not for for other other people, uh, since we know that the United States, just like any other imperial power, is making decisions and and bringing its power to bear in order to uh, to uh, help itself or at least the the the, uh, the dominant forces in in the United States. Obama did do the world a service, and many people on the left disagree with me, but I'll say it. I think he did the world a service uh, with his speech in Cairo. Uh, there was nothing in su uh, substance, of substance uh, in that speech, but he did go a long way, I believe, uh, towards uh, reversing uh, George Bush's rhetoric uh, to the world. Uh, this, uh, which, which was, which was actually a, an American racist domestic approach written globally, uh, an attempt uh, to create uh, false enemies of the uh, American uh, project uh, in, in thinly veiled uh, racial uh, uh, terms. Uh, and the Muslim world, of course, uh, caught those cues. The cues were meant for the American people in order to rally uh, the Americans around this, uh, uh, this uh, geopolitical military crusade. Uh, but the way that uh, George Bush went about it uh, was, to, was to, in fact, uh, incite uh, race, racist, uh, uh, deep racist uh, emotions in the American public. Uh, the Muslim world caught that uh, and realized that it was, in fact, being uh, uh, targeted uh, as, as some kind of subhuman uh, group uh, on the planet. It, it, was, it was necessary uh, for... for uh, just for the tone of discussion uh, on planet Earth, uh, that Obama starts speaking to people as if they are human beings. Uh, that's not much to ask, but in the but in the post in, in a world that has been poisoned by the rhetoric of Bush, uh, it actually was something quite necessary. And uh, yeah, I commend him for talking to people like human beings for a change. That's that's uh, not something we're used to from an American president. Domestically, I have great admiration for, for Cynthia McKinney. Uh, she's the uh, former congresswoman from, from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, she was just in the news uh, recently uh, for participating in two uh, humanitarian interventions or attempts at interventions in Gaza. Uh, uh, I don't like the word heroes and, or, or heroines, uh, but I have great admiration for her, and I think, I think her story is is worth telling, because here is is a is a black woman uh, who grows with every encounter uh, with with uh, with the power structure, uh, who doesn't allow herself, who explores every area uh, of potential uh, progress, and even when beaten down, uh, as 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 she was uh, with her uh, arrest uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, after being, I believe, set up by Capitol Hill police, made to uh, look like a, a crazy woman, uh, and then her subsequent defeat, uh, decided that, well, just because electoral politics has turned out to be a dead end here, uh, just because uh, I couldn't even get solidarity with the rest of the Congressional Black Caucus doesn't mean I give up struggle. And so now she's, she's remaking uh, herself uh, as, as, as a 
a, a non-elected politics activist uh, at, at uh, something like 50 years of age. And I think that's, that's admirable. Not everybody gives up. Some of us just keep on stepping, and Cynthia McKinney uh, uh, has my deepest admiration for doing that. Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, uh, a, a real light uh, to the Southern uh, Hemisphere. Uh, he's performed uh, what 10 years ago we would have considered a miracle. Uh, a real left is coalescing uh, in, in Latin America, uh, and, and, and much of the credit is due uh, to him. Uh, he, he never lets up. Uh, he never allows the imperialist uh, uh, to walk around without his name tag, imperialist. Uh, he calls George Bush a devil when he acts devilishly, devilishly and Latin Americans love it. Uh, he has become a, a focus uh, for the folks uh, who the United States has treated like trash for centuries. And uh, if, there's, if, if you're talking about uh, uh, individuals who deserve admiration, yeah, Hugo Chavez. And it involves Barack Obama. Uh, it's not a long story. In, in June of 2003, uh, my team was working at blackcommentator.com. Every uh, week, uh, I would uh, uh, study the list of the Democratic Leadership Council. That's the right-wing corporate uh, uh, mechanism of the Democratic Party. I'd go to their membership list to see uh, what black politician uh, they had uh, recruited that week. Uh, in, in the first week in June of 2003, I went through my usual routine and discovered that Barack Obama was listed as a member of the DLC, the right wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, I was very excited and I called uh, my managing editor in, in Atlanta, uh, Bruce Dixon, to tell him about it. But before I could blurt out that Barack Obama was, was a member of the DLC, he said, Glenn, I, before you tell me that, let me tell you, I just went to Barack Obama's website, and he, he's taken uh, down from his website his anti-war speech. It's not there anymore. So we both made a discovery uh, the same day about Barack Obama, and we decided since uh, uh, Bruce knew Barack Obama from, from Chicago, and since uh, Obama was then ranked fourth in the uh, Democratic senatorial uh, primary race and wanted to talk to everybody, that we would confront him on this. We spent a month uh, going back and forth. It's all on the record and the archives are uh, on, the, on the net. Going back and forth with Barack Obama about uh, uh, his uh, being listed as a member of the DLC. Why did he... Uh, uh, take his uh, anti-war speech off of his campaign website. What was his position uh, now on on health care, on on NAFTA, uh, and on uh, withdrawal from Iraq? We put him through the ringer, uh, and finally, in the end, we gave him what we called a bright line test. If he uh, could answer uh, these uh, three issue questions on these three issue areas correctly, uh, we would uh, declare that. Uh, whether or not he was in the DLC or not, he denied that he, that he was, uh, he should be or he should not be. Uh, those questions were, uh, if you are elected to the Senate, uh, will you introduce legislation uh, 
to withdraw from NAFTA. If you are elected to the Senate, will you introduce legislation uh, for single-payer uh, health care? If you are elected to the Senate, will you introduce legislation to withdraw immediately from Iraq? He then proceeded over a period of a week uh, to fashion uh, answers to that question. Uh, in the end, they were fuzzy, a fuzzy mishmash of non-answers. And Bruce Dixon and I uh, uh, had a decision to make. Uh, were we going to pass him or fail him? Uh, we, at that time, did not want to be seen uh, as the proverbial crabs in a barrel, uh, people who are anxious uh, when a brother's trying to climb up to you know, pull him back down. Uh, and so even though we agreed that he had flunked the Bright Lines test, that he was not a progressive, uh, we declared that he had passed the test. That was a dilemma, and we failed our own test. I've never regretted uh, a political decision as much as having passed uh, Barack Obama when he should have failed the test. And that is, was the court who made his transition on Thursday, July 28th. 2021. I am always amazed when uh, I listen or read whatever he has written over the years, the depth and, and insightful kind of political analysis that Glenn is known for. And one of the reasons I wanted to share that particular interview with you, because I believe that it is one of the best left, black left political analyses and education, information, um, training, as, um, as I understood um, his comments in that interview over the la over uh, a little over a half an hour, uh, Glenn Ford was a man who stood on what he believed. He sacrificed and built uh, such an important media outlet for black political analysis. And, and when I say that, I don't just mean um, domestic black issues. I'm talking about being able to see through the lens of black nationalism and looking at international affairs and the um, interchange and interaction of foreign affairs. <laughs> Excuse me, one of the reasons, <laughs> excuse me, I apologize, um, um, global um, perspective, um, utilizing the lenses of black nationalism. One of the things I do want to point out that Glenn was a founding member of the Washington chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists. 
He was an executive board member of the National. This man was so diverse, but it was in the core of his life's work. Uh, he was the executive. He was on the executive board of the National Alliance of Third World Journalists. He was a media specialist for the National Minority Purchasing Council, and he has spoken over his career at literally hundreds of colleges and universities. I first met him when he was a rank-and-file member of the Black Panther Party between 1969 and 1970. And, you know, uh, even though he is larger than life in terms of people whose brilliance I respect, Bruce, uh, uh, Glenn, is only a year older than me, was a year older than me. Um, He was, in the 1970s, a rank-and-file union activist in a whole bunch of factories and plants and workplaces. And in 1980s, he became a community organizer in what were then some of the nation's poorest neighborhoods, organizing and consulting through the 1990s. He and Bruce Dixon, who is an Our Common Ground voice, had built an impressive record of service in and to the cause of liberation. Um, And as the executive and managing editor of Black, uh, I'm sorry, as the uh, managing editor of Black uh, Agenda Report, Bruce Dixon, who passed this year, was chiefly responsible for maintaining the website, and he was living in Marietta, Georgia, and was a state committee chairperson of the Georgia Green Party. As far as I know, Glenn Ford has never been a member of any political party. And if you listened carefully at his commentary here uh, in that uh, interview, you could probably figure out why. We were very, at Our Common Ground, very proud to have been one of the early supporters of Black Agenda Report because I had been um, a supporter of Black Commentator. And this is um, the ad that we used to run for Black uh, Agenda Report until they got their own radio. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. We want to interrupt your simple line to tell you that mainstream media is not telling you the truth. Subscribe to the Black Agenda Report. Get the truth, the insight, and the analysis. The Black Agenda Report. You've been warned and fortified.
the Black Agenda Report. That was uh, one of the ads that we used to run for Black Agenda Report at Our Common Ground. Uh, I I just, I, I think that when black people dedicate their entire lives to our well-being, and media is part of our well-being, and, and Bruce, um, Glenn and I um, had a particular um, close association in the mid-80s around the selling off or the uh, trying to pull together the dying black community radio stations across the country. Of course, uh, he wrote about it in the, black, uh, in the Black Commentator about how black radio was undermined by a capitalist move with black misleadership in tow. And you can find that, um, I used to post it a lot, and I think I'll post it again on the Our Common Ground website because it was really important, and we didn't understand how important it was. And one of the things I also want to point out about Glenn, Glenn Ford understood the implication of Barack Obama's arrival to the national American political stage. He understood it. Uh, He understood it in a way that many people did not understand it. And it was not about uh, so much Barack Obama, the person, even though it was about that, and you heard some of that in that interview. It was about how it would configure a new political landscape for black people. Um, so I, I, I can't um, underscore the importance of having someone with his kind of experience, his kind of insightfulness, his ability, as I call him, as a black truth teller. Um, Many people kind of blanch at the idea that I talk about black truth, but there is a truth that that is the truth of, that black people have experienced in their lives in their history in their culture that no other group can see through those lens other than black people and glenn understood that and that made him entirely a pioneering black truth teller. He was a black truth warrior, and he didn't care in his arrogance, in his way that he just 
could ignore the chatter. He didn't care. He was a very important person in both journalistic and media history in our lifetimes. I'm going to share with you uh, his presentation at the 25th, I think it was the 20th or the 25th anniversary of the Black Agenda Report. This is a political lesson. To begin this program, uh, which is put together around the theme of the blackness leadership class, uh, I think that two words uh, would suffice to introduce the subject of black misleadership class. And those words are Cory Booker, <laughs> whose name is, of course, <laughs> on everyone's lips. Uh, just this week, of course, uh, Cory Booker uh, was elected or became the senator-elect uh, from New Jersey. Uh, last night, I was flipping around through the channels and I stumbled, totally by mistake of course, stumbled uh, upon Fox TV. And I saw that uh, the crew was busy trying to explain how Cory Booker was such a liberal uh, tax and spend uh, politician uh, who would favor urban areas, meaning black, over suburban areas of New Jersey, meaning uh, white. And that is just so far from the truth, it is laughable, because Cory Booker is the politician who was bought and paid for by the same institutions, the same money bags that are just as white and far to the right as Fox News itself. In point of historical fact, Booker's political career was birthed in the womb of the right-wing Bradley Foundation out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And you don't get any more reactionary than that. The Bradley Foundation was so far to the right and so good at doing far-right things uh, that it was dubbed by uh, President Bush his favorite foundation. And he wasn't kidding about that. They did him some great service. They contributed to two of his most important domestic policies. One of them was called the Faith-Based Initiative, which was essentially a scheme designed to bribe a whole class of black preachers. And black preachers are, of course, a very important component of the black misleadership class, as Dr. West would explain if he hadn't had this uh, personal tragedy. Bush's faith-based initiative had black preachers lined up, literally thousands of them, uh, to get a federal gift and in return, those preachers would either become Republicans or endorse Republican policies. That was the product of the Bradley Foundation and the think tanks that it funds. The other gift that the Bradley Foundation gave to the Bush administration was the campaign for private school vouchers. 
And that campaign was very quickly expanded into an all-out push for charter schools, which did even more widespread destruction. And that is the point where Cory Booker comes in. Cory Booker had just turned 30, and he was in his first year of his first term in the Newark City Council, uh, where, by the way, and I used to cover the Newark City Council for a small black newspaper that I helped found, and nobody on the City Council uh, paid much attention uh, to Cory uh, Booker. Uh, he was there at the first meeting, the founding gathering in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, under the auspices of the Bradley Foundation uh, for a front group that they had specifically formed in order to try and create the impression that there was a movement out there among black folks for private school vouchers. Now, the reality was that private school vouchers uh, had never been an issue in the black community. Uh, if people were familiar at all with private school vouchers, it was in the context of them being used in order to fund segregation academies in the Deep South during the time of massive uh, resistance. Uh, but the Bradley Foundation reasoned that with their millions and millions of dollars, they could create a movement or the semblance of one out of a thin air. All they had to do was attract a gaggle of hustlers and scoundrels, black hustlers and scoundrels, and call them uh, the, begin the, think the thinkers and movers and shakers of a new movement, and it would be so. And all they had to do was tell the, uh, the, the corporate media uh, that this was a legitimate movement of black people, uh, and they would cover it that way. And Cory Booker was at that first meeting of this Black Alliance of educate for Educational Options in 1998. Uh, also on hand was Floyd Flake. Uh, he was the congressman from Queens who, before he resigned, was the only member of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, who ever supported school vouchers. Floyd Flake went on to become a, an important cog in the wheel of the Manhattan Institute. All of you are familiar with that right-wing outfit, and to make millions as a practitioner <clears throat> of charter schools. <clears throat> Flake and Booker are part of a black misleadership class, however, one that is totally bought and paid for, uh, created out of whole cloth by the corporate world. Uh, three years later, after Corey uh, got his real political beginnings, after he put together the source of his funding, <clears throat> he made his first run for mayor of Newark, New Jersey. That was in 2002. He was backed with millions of dollars in campaign funds from that same universe of right-wingers that he had met through the Bradley Foundation. Even the right-wing columnist George F. Will came to Newark to support Cory Booker. This is how Cory Booker was set on the path to becoming a major black political figure as a wholly owned subsidiary of the most reactionary forces in the United States, as a pure servant of corporate power. That year was 2002. That's when we first called attention 
at Black Commentator. Black Commentator was the predecessor to Black Agenda Report, and that's where the core of the Black Agenda Report team came together. And back in 2002, we were the first uh, to call attention uh, to the great danger that was represented not just by Cory Booker, but to all of these newly empowered hustlers and scoundrels who were being funded by the corporate world. That was the first issue, in fact, of the black commentator, the cover story for that first issue. It was called Fruit of the Poison Tree. The core team of Black Agenda Report has actually been documenting the rise of this new cohort of black corporate politicians for more than a decade, not just the seven years that we're celebrating tonight of Black Agenda Report. The black misleadership class is nothing new. It did not begin in 1998 or in 2002 or even with this surge of corporate funding. It has always been there. It has existed in some form as long as there has been a black America. It is a class that sees its own personal, financial, and social interests as being synonymous with the progress of black people as a whole. This class does not seek transformation of society. It seeks only their own elevation within the existing structures. The rest of black America, as far as they are concerned, is supposed to applaud their individual success. And we're also supposed to call that black progress, no matter what is actually happening to the masses of black people uh, at the bottom. It is the politics of putting black faces in high places and to hell with those of us stuck at the bottom or those of us who are below the bottom in the U.S. prison gulag. This black misleadership class has always been among us, and it is the tension uh, between these representationists, these who see uh, only uh, the goal of being represented that is having a few black folks in business and in motion pictures and maybe one day, now is the day, in the White House, uh, but do not see uh, the need for a transformation of society. What's new is the massive influx of national corporate money to black Democrats, to black Democrats. That is the transformation uh, that occurred uh, in, at the turn of the 21st century, and resulting in not just Cory Booker's candidacy, uh, but others as well. It all begins in 2002 with Cory Booker's first campaign for mayor and the corporate-funded unseating of Cynthia McKinney in Atlanta and of Earl Hilliard in Alabama. These campaigns were funded by the same people that put Cory Booker up for office the first time. Corporate money transformed the black electoral politics game just as corporate money subverted the old line black civic and civil rights organizations and made them into willing partners with the very same Wall Street banks that were back in 2002 beginning to target every black neighborhood in the nation 
with subprime mortgages. That is when that offensive began as well. Corporate America begins the 21st century with a massive money offensive in black America. And they were successful beyond their wildest dreams. They knew that they had a future star in Cory Booker. And they're so happy today. They're celebrating. Their boy is going to the Senate. But back in 2002, they were also vetting another and much more talented and much more promising front man for capital. And his name was Barack Obama. He was beginning his campaign uh, for the Senate from Illinois. We at Black Agenda Report, or rather at Black Commentator when the team was there, uh, we confronted Obama for a solid month uh, in June of 2003, Bruce Dixon and I. We had an intense back and forth exchange with Brother Obama, which you can still read in the pages of the Black Commentator. We knew that Obama was a nightmare that was about to happen, but we did let him slide. We hoped that we could somehow avoid denouncing this up-and-coming young man that so many people found so attractive. But of course, it didn't work that way. We couldn't avoid him for long. It was Barack Obama who wound up moving forward and astonishingly, in astonishing speed, Cory Booker's and the Bradley Foundation's agenda on the privatization of public schools. And one of Obama's first acts was to expand the faith-based initiatives. So we have the Bradley Foundation's initiative living on with Obama, just as the Heritage Foundation's legacy lives on in Obamacare. Cory Booker has gone on to climb into bed with every money bag in the Silicon Valley. But Barack Obama is the commander-in-chief of global capitalism, the imperial maestro with a kill list that has everybody's name and everybody's address on it, along with all of your social and political networks and friends. And all of this has been done with a black face. The transformation in black politics over the last 10 years has been staggering. It has been absolutely breathtaking. In 2002, when George Bush asked the U.S. Congress for war powers in order to attack Iraq, only four members of the Congressional Black Caucus voted in favor. Our team at the Black Commentator called these four people the four eunuchs of war. Now fast forward just nine years to 2011 in the age of Obama. Fully half of the Congressional Black Caucus, 20 members, voted against a resolution that would have halted the U.S. bombing of an African nation, Libya. This is an outcome that would have been unthinkable under George Bush just a few years before. It was even more grotesque when it's remembered that while these 20 black members of Congress were voting to continue bombing Libya, President Obama's jihadist rebel friends were carrying out a race war on the ground in Libya, 
purging the country of black Libyans and African migrants and massacring them by the thousands. But that didn't change the minds of half of the Congressional Black Caucus. Only a decade earlier, in 2003, just six weeks before the Iraq war began, the Zogby poll did a survey that found that only 21% of blacks supported an attack on Iraq. Huge majorities at the same time of white men were for the war and majorities of white women and nearly half of Hispanics were also for a war against uh, Iraq. But when the Zogby poll asked the question, would you support an invasion of Iraq if it would result in the death of thousands of Iraqi civilians, only 7% of blacks said yes. And that was a reaffirmation of what pollsters had found consistently ever since blacks have been included in the polling process. They have found that African Americans are the group most consistently opposed to U.S. military adventures abroad. And that is because, historically, we have not trusted the motives of the United States. And we never have. That is, until a black man came to sit in the White House. And suddenly, those motives were seen as benign. Now, fast forward again to September of this year. For the first time in history, more blacks said they were in favor of war than whites did. This has never happened before. Forty percent of blacks surveyed by the ABC Washington Post poll said they were in favor of a military strike against Syria. Only 38 percent of whites said so, and only 31 percent of Hispanics were in favor. The question then raised is, is this a repudiation by a sizable proportion of black folks of the historical black consensus on peace and on social justice? I don't think that it is a repudiation, but right now we can't prove whether it is or not. What is clear is that the age of Obama is offering up the worst role models in black American history and the black political class that is quite willing to consign the black consensus on peace to the dustbin of history in order to defend a black presence in the highest office in the land. So go bomb the Libyans and go bomb the Syrians. We got a black man in the White House. What does it matter? A significant proportion of the black population is willing to go along with almost any program as long as they feel that they are acting or expressing opinions that are in defense of Obama. I'm going to leave you with one more horrific factoid. Fully one-third of the black caucus recently voted to maintain the NSA's spying program on all Americans. And to think, one-third of the caucus, people who are representing black communities that are suffering mass incarceration and have been suffering mass 
incarceration for the last 40 years. And we understand that the beginning of the process of mass incarceration is hyper-surveillance of the black community. And yet this one-third of the black caucus votes for hyper-surveillance of all Americans. This is a monstrous deformity of black politics and has occurred over just the last 10 years. It's rooted in the huge onslaught of corporate money into black democratic politics and in the suborning by corporations of traditional black organizations. There is no movement to act as a countervailing force to the power of capital. And when there is no mass movement, the self-serving black misleadership class becomes even more influential internally in black America. Black Agenda Report exists to play a role in the rebuilding of a mass black movement. And if there is no rebuilding of a mass black movement, there is little hope of any effective progressive resistance to the rule of Wall Street and its servants in government and for peace. Some of you may say, Glenn, uh, why all this lamentation? I thought this was supposed to be uh, a celebration of Black Agenda's seventh anniversary, and you ain't smiled yet. But I think that we are celebrating. We're celebrating the fact that we are still here fighting the power every day. And that more and more people of all races are recognizing the real dimensions of the crisis and the character and nature of the crisis. We're celebrating the fact that there still exists a critical mass of people who are struggling to re-establish and repair the black historical consensus for social justice and peace. And some of the most outstanding personalities in that struggle are right here with us tonight. We promised you a productive and worthwhile evening. Power to the people. And he ends it with power to the people, something for which I believe Glenn Ford dedicated his life to. So for those of you who are listening, I hope that you have been enlightened by political lessons left to us by Glenn Ford, a beloved truth-telling warrior who is now a beloved ancestor. And I have been saying since I learned of his death on Thursday morning that the ancestors celebrated his homecoming. They kissed his feet and danced above his head as he made his transition. Glenn Ford had been very ill for the last maybe three years, and he did what warriors do. He hung in there. He was there until um, 
the, the very end where he could no longer uh, warrior on. But he has left a body of work for which I admire, respect, and will always go back to some of the lessons that he taught us. I loved as he um, provided lessons for all of us who are in the media, that we must be vigilant, that we must side with movements that are counter to our oppression, counter to our yearning for the black traditional form of justice. Thank you for being with us. Uh, As you know, I haven't been live on the air for a couple of weeks. I have been having some problems with uh, uh, my throat, and uh, it seems to be clearing up a little bit, and I'm going to hang in here. I want to also encourage you to subscribe to the Black Agenda Report, blackagendareport.com. And I'm going to be sharing something with you because Glenn was an important mover and shaker in media. And uh, he was a collaborator with a lot of people. Um, And his work, his body of work, both in journalism and uh, labor work, uh, his organizing of a number. He was a member of the National Association of Black Talk Radio Hosts, which I shared for about I chaired for about eight years, and uh, he was very instrumental in ensuring that black people had an outlet of information and analysis through commentary. Uh, Pascal Robert, who is a a frequent uh, guest here and has co-hosted with me, is one of the contributors uh, to Black Agenda Report. Uh, Cedric Johnson, there's a whole bunch of... uh, really good analysts, political analysts that are associated with the Black Agenda Report. And we uh, highly recommend that you become a subscriber and that you read it daily. They also have a morning show uh, on their site. Uh, We also uh, recommend I I Like What I Mix which we're going to hear from Dr. Jared Ball, who is an Our Common Ground voice, uh, who talks about uh, and reflects on the life of Glenn Ford as we go out tonight. Uh, Next week we'll be right here, but we are going to be taking off most of the, the the tail end of August and September. Uh, to get ourselves together, to get ready for uh, these 
um, uh, political shenanigans that are going on that are very troubling. Watch, see, and share with your family and friends because it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Remix Morning Show here at Black Power Media. Uh, again, I'm Jared Ball. I just want to uh, give uh, share a few thoughts uh, about Glenn Ford, who's, of course, passing. We just got word of uh, yesterday. Um, beg your forgiveness, but for me, this is absolutely a nearest moment. Pour some out for Glenn. And everybody's not with us. Writing about James Brown in 2014, Glenn Ford said, quote, left unsaid was the fact that Mr. Brown held only one person in high regard, himself. With the release of the movie Get On Up, those of us who knew Soul Brother Number 1 are free at last to tell the truth. He was an asshole of the highest order, end quote. Glenn titled, his fi- Glenn titled his final words about Brown the hardest working asshole in show business, and I thought immediately that this would be how I would one day write about him. Glenn knew James Brown from working in black radio, a station owned by Brown, where Glenn would first learn truths about Brown, radio, and black media, lessons he brought to his work ever since. So Glenn knew a little bit about what he said. And by that standard, I damn sure know of what I speak now, given that I knew and worked with Glenn Ford for longer and closer than he did with James Brown. I worked with Glenn from about 2001 or so until roughly 2011, and intermittently thereafter until his death, though we effectively parted ways about a decade ago because, as he said of Brown, and what will undoubtedly be left unsaid in all the, un, the, all the ultimately insufficient tributes to this great man is that Glenn was also an asshole of the highest order. Glenn wasn't self-important, like he said of Brown. It wasn't himself he held in high regard beyond all else. No. That lofty space was saved strictly for black radical analysis. His almost singular focus on that made him hold in low or with no regard damn near everybody and everything else. If you weren't helping him evolve or disseminate black radicalism, you better at least be bringing him a cigarette or a drink or be careful. Now, beyond that, it must be said clearly that this parallel I'm attempting is unfair for at least two reasons. First would have to be that I am saying this far sooner than Glenn, than Glenn did regarding Brown, though Hollywood will never make an even half-hearted attempt at a film about Glenn Ford, thereby providing some mass invitation to reflect on him or his work. To my point, Glenn was far too radical and correct to have his brilliance elevated to the level of commercial propagation. The second reason, though, is far more important. I will never be to Glenn what he was to James Brown. This isn't a comparison of proximity, it's one of importance or a comparison of their seminal relationship to their crafts. That is, Glenn Ford was to black radical journalism, commentary, radio, and analysis to black radical media what Brown was to music 
and would only be due to his banishment from any form of capitalist enterprise or the absence of the kinds of support offered James Brown by the most reactionary of cultural industries or politics, that there will be many who don't properly appreciate the accuracy of my claim. Imagine Glenn being invited to even Obama's White House, as Brown was to Nixon's. Glenn Ford should be as popular and beloved among any consumer of news as James Brown is to consumers of music. He was even to black commentary what Rakim is to rap. Glenn could easily take seven commentators and put them in a line, add seven more commentators who think they can rhyme. Well, it takes seven more before I go for mine, now that's 21 commentators ate up at the same time. Glenn invented a new lane of expression, revolutionized black public popular discourse, and has provided more samples to new generations of often less capable writers, myself included, than any single journalist of the last two decades. So when anyone bristles at my describing him as I did Brown, I expect and understand any visceral reaction. All would be understandable if not justified. But for a time, I think I knew Glenn as well as anyone could. I wanted to be able to think like him, write like him, bring the funk and soul to news analysis like him. And only I cared slightly more than he did about all the feelings he hurt along the way, never worried about how his analysis hit as long as it hit hard. And it always did. He could be brash, short, in temper, not just stature, condescending and difficult to bring to some organizational spaces. How many times have I said to someone in response to them calling me about the harshness of the critique, but was he wrong? The answer was never yes. It would be just about the way he was right. Invariably, my next line would be, you don't have to work with him, so don't take it personally and move on. Easier said than done, because when it was my turn, un <laughs> unexplained as his actions were, it hurt, and straight up it still does. Glenn's was the analysis I brought to my earliest organizational meetings having thought I found in Black Commentator my generation's intercommunal news service. I invited Glenn to D.C. to meet with our organization, and having experienced a version of this myself, did not even recognize this fair-skinned, ponytail-wearing, chain-smoking, how many times did he step outside, tiny man staring holes in my head. But then he spoke. And even when nervous or rarely unprepared by his standards, Glenn was sharp, smooth, and sounded like every man I would have tried to emulate as a boy growing up. When he offered to publish my first commentary, I had to front like I was expecting it. When he invited me to speak on panels on his behalf or that of BC and eventually Barr, I had to front like this didn't mean the world to me. I even developed an introductory line in those instances where I would tell folks that I'm just trying to be the sixth man of the year award coming off the bench. When he called me for years at crazy hours, wanting to run by me his latest commentary or idea, I had to front like I thought this was routine. And when he would say, man, we really need your commentary this week because the issue is light, I had to front like this sense of heightened importance was just another request. With Glenn, I was always fronting, mostly like I wasn't looking for, and in him, a jegna, an advisor, a father. But I was. But when Peter Gamble called me in 2004 to tell me that his partner, Glenn Ford, was leaving Black Commentator to form Black Agenda Report, and would I stay to become editor of Black Commentator, there was no need to front then. The answer was an easy no. Glenn had brought me in. Glenn would be the only reason I was at BC. And if he was leaving, there was no point in me staying. 
Bill Fletcher took that gig at BC, and the rest was history. Damn. But after 10-plus years of constant work, Glenn unceremoniously replaced me from a related project we had begun to build and for which I worked for months, and worse still, replaced me with people he had previously said to me repeatedly should, quote, never be allowed back, back in black radical politics for their support of Obama. I thought he had chosen radical celebrity over fidelity to a comrade. I let him know we were done. True to form, there was no sentimentality for Glenn. No drama, no response, not a word. Once I told him I was out, it was a wrap for me and no longer a need for him to engage. My usefulness to his almost exclusive focus had run its course. It was more like me quitting after having already been fired. Since then, when we would, when we would cross paths, and even if I directly raised the issue with him, his response was the same, nothing. A shrug, a change of topic maybe, mostly just a dismissal and some silence. But that was Glenn. By the time we came to know each other, he was clear, though I wasn't, that he didn't care about feelings, emotions, and he damn sure wasn't offering me the roles I was projecting onto him. Glenn wanted to create the analyses that would cause revolution, full stop. He wanted to draw and have us protect our bright political lines and to develop a movement to advocate for them. Black Agenda Report was not named haphazardly. Glenn wanted to expose the black misleadership class, a phrase for which we owe him eternally. In fact, my first assignment for Barr living in D.C. at the time was to go to the National Press Club only to ask Cory Booker a question that was designed by Glenn to expose him on the record as the latest addition at that time to that black misleadership class. I was so amped. The Glenn Ford sent me for the new Barr. Glenn and Bruce Dixon right beside him made me part of the, of the vanguard who were early uh, right and first about who misleaders like Booker and Obama were and would become. Glenn was right about these misleaders as he was about Black Lives Matter, Bernie Sanders, sheepdog and ass, black press history, the particular tactic of having bar target a black radical intelligentsia that would bring value to the work beyond any immediate or observable, observable popularity. He was right about a lot. And to Glenn, that was all that mattered. If he was right in his political analysis, it meant almost nothing that he may not be right in his personal behavior or as a comrade. Like James Brown, his genius acted as a mask, a shield, something to distract or protect him from being properly assessed as a man. Maybe he was right about that too. Nobody will give a shit that I or anyone else might remind of his imperfections because he made his name on accurate, biting, black radical analysis, and he was often exactly right. For years after our split, it was understandably assumed by many that all was good and through no fault of their own would have me pressed into several uncomfortable working arrangements with Glenn. Not wanting to seem childish or simply misunderstood, I would just do it because, of course, all were right that his work objectively was, still is, essential. Since we started Black Power Media, I've been asked repeatedly, why has he never been on? Each request felt like another gut punch. But I never answered why he had not been on until more recently when Glenn, as he had so many times before when it came to political analysis, gave me an answer, that he was too weak to do interviews. Indeed, Glenn even treated his own physical health as he did many people, with a kind of disregard beyond its base ability to help push a radical conclusion. When asked for whom would you die, I often think no one, 
because in combat I like to think more assertively about those for whom I would take the lives of others. Glenn for a long time topped my list. An attack on him for years would have meant an inordinate response from me and remains terribly painful that he did not feel the same way for me personally, even as I know he felt that way broadly speaking about the people. But even still, it is far more painful to know that now he is no longer here to punish this ignoble world for, with, his, with his viciously accurate interpretation of it, or that he is no longer here to remind me of the last thing I said to him, that everything I, should, that everything I do should have been under your banner anyway. <clears throat> Rest in power, Glenn Ford, the hardest working asshole in black radical media. Peace. And that was Dr. Jared Ball, who obviously had great love, respect for uh, Glenn Ford. And I offered this presentation to you because I think it is important that in this work of advancing the political agenda of black people, of building a black infrastructure under which we can win, it is important for us to understand our relationships. We don't always agree. We don't always agree about uh, the direction. And in these more than 50 years that I have been an activist, there are many people with whom I have had disagreements. I mean, uh, beefs. Um, the beef between Dr. Ball and Glenn Ford within the circle of radical activists was known. But it does not, it does not preclude our ability to know and to honor when there is a right. And one of the things that Glenn Ford has been consistent is in, in the authentic nature in which he has drawn political opinion and offered it in his analysis. And, 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 and Jared is absolutely right. He was almost every time right. Uh, the last conversation that I had with Glenn Ford was at the beginning of Barack Obama's second term. And his question to me was in regard to my narrative about our duty to have some unity with every resource available to us. I saw Barack Obama as a resource. And he consistently argued the point that it would be of no interest to black people 
to continue to have anticipate any kind of support. And I was still adamant about it, that because they were coming for him, we needed and had some obligation as black people to have his back. Barack Obama disappointed at every turn. And on the night that Glenn Ford died, I was thinking, yes, he was right again. So we want to encourage you, if you want a um, an insightful lesson in radical black politics to follow, subscribe to the Black Agenda Report. We encourage you to subscribe on YouTube or Facebook to This Is Revolution, to subscribe and follow I Mix What I Like with Dr. Jared Bell, who is the uh, Dean of the School of Communications at Morgan State University, and balance that with all of the other things that you follow including Our Common Ground. Um, want to remind you that we will be here next week, that Dr. James Taylor has indicated that he is finishing his book, um, and he's had some snafus along the way, and he has not abandoned us at Our Common Ground, so I'm hoping that he will come back. As a matter of fact, I'm hoping that he will host the show while I'm away. Um, I'm still having some real problems uh, with um, health issues around my throat. When I talk too long, uh, I begin to have some problems of coughing. Uh, for those of you who know and who have been sending me email, I did, uh, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. We'll see you next week. This is a monstrous deformity of black politics, and it has occurred over just the last ten years. It's rooted in the huge onslaught of corporate money into black democratic politics and in the suborning by corporations of traditional black organizations. There is no movement to act as a countervailing force to the power of capital. And when there is no mass movement, the self-serving black misleadership class becomes even more influential internally in black America. Black Agenda Report exists to play a role in the rebuilding of a mass black movement. And if there is no rebuilding of a mass black movement, there is little hope of any effective progressive resistance to the rule of Wall Street and its servants in government. 
and for peace. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you. Don't care what the weather, don't care about no trouble, got myself together, I feel my kind of